my great pleasure to welcome back a friend and also a previous guest on Church and Culture, Michael Hitchborn. Michael is the founder and president of Lepanto Institute, very well-known figure in the pro-life movement, the pro-life world for that matter. He spent over seven years with the American Life League as director of the Defend the Face Project. He did all kinds of very important research and and reports on organizations receiving grant money from the Catholic Campaign for Human Development. This annual report exposed dozens of grantees that promote abortion, birth control, homosexuality, Marxism, which has led to a nationwide review of the CCHD and a tightening of its guidelines. He holds a bachelor's degree from Christendom in political science and economics and a master's degree in education from the American Intercontinental University. In 2017, Michael became a member of the John Paul II Academy for Human Life, and the family lives in Virginia. I've been in his home with his wife, Alyssa, and their eight children. Michael Hitchborn, welcome back to Church and Culture. Thanks so much for having me back on, Bill. It's, it's a great pleasure to talk to you again. Well, I remember being around when you gave birth to Lepanto Institute. Yes, yes. Uh, we were uh, collaborating and scheming and plotting at the ground level. Well, and I knew you'd be a great success, which you are, and by and I'm measuring success by the kind of influence you've had and, and the kind of voice that you have in the public square and in the Catholic Church. And I noticed recently that on Facebook that you're organizing conversations. Could you tell us about that? What we're currently working on, we are trying to discuss a, a certain report that we're getting ready to put out in um, uh, in March, uh, and uh, we are collaborating with with the Population Research Institute uh, and a few other organizations in trying to. Uh, I, I can't say too much because I don't want to give too much away. But, no. But with this report, we. Um, it's 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 really going to be an explosive report, and I think that a lot of people need to pay attention uh, when we get this information out because it's it's going to change um, people's perspectives on how things are being done by Catholic entities. <laughs> now, I remember back when you first started your reports on Catholic Campaign for Human Development, and I remember their response. Uh, their response being that they're giving to the entities uh, and the entities share most of our values and programs, but not all. And but we're not we're not supporting the stuff that we we don't agree with. Now, you can you argued then, I guess, as you argue now, that's a complete fallacy. It is. Uh, and, and it's. It's really very sad, uh, ultimately, because as we continue to investigate organizations receiving money from the CCHD, and we continue to provide this information to the bishops free of charge, um, we continue to educate the populace, uh, Catholic, the Catholic faithful, on what we're, we've been finding with regard to grantees of the CCHD. The CCHD just issues blanket denials saying, oh, no, we don't give money to organizations that act against church teaching, and if we do find something on those rare occasions, uh, then we immediately take action and that organization is defunded. But that's that's really not true. Um, <clears throat> for three years now, I'll, I'll give you an example. For three years now, we've been giving uh, publishing information on an organization called the Ostara Initiative. This organization was founded uh, by a woman who created it. As, it was originally named the ISIS uh, Project. Of course. And it was, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I mean, it was steeped in the occult. Um, the symbol for this thing is the triple goddess of Wicca. Uh, and We're giving it, money to that? Oh yes, oh yes. $60,000 a year, $180,000 in three years. And what what was really horrible about this group, though, was that they were providing information and access to abortion to women who were in prison. And we got this from the founders' statements. We got this from organizers' statements.
statements. We got this from presentations that they gave, from interviews that they gave. And we provided this information to the CCHD for three years in a row, saying this organization says of their own work that they are helping girls in prison to obtain access to abortion, and you're continuing to fund them, which means that when you say you don't fund organizations that you know are, are supporting abortion, you are lying. And what's their response on this particular organization? Crickets. crickets. Absolute crickets. Well, you're familiar with crickets, Michael. <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, it seems to be the resp- the common response these days. Over the years, though, you've gotten responses. What what happens, what's different when you actually get responses? Or do you get certain bishops supporting you? What happens? When I'm able to sit down one-on-one with various bishops, and I show them exactly what we've found, uh, most of the time the response is that the bishop is aghast. He's absolutely stunned to see the information, because, you know, it's not just... Uh, a brief that gets put on his desk with an explanation from a CRS talking head or, or a CCHD talking head where they say, well, you know, uh, this upstart organization, the Lepanto Institute, they're just trying to stir up trouble and here's their latest report. Do you want to see it? Well, no, of course not. So I'll just go ahead and tell you what they're saying isn't true and uh, here's how you should probably respond. Uh, and that's generally how it goes with them. But when I get a chance to sit down one-on-one and turn page after page of the first-hand evidence and to show them exactly where it's linked, the bishops are very upset. And as a result, we've gotten several bishops who finally said, you know, enough's enough. I'm out. I'm not going to support this. And they don't. Uh, But those meetings are few and far between. Why is there such lethargy regarding you know, teachings that are absolutely black and white. And why can't that money be given to organizations about which there is no question they're doing doing good work? Right. Well, I think part of the problem is that the Catholic Campaign for Human Development was founded specifically, as in its primary purpose was to finance Saul Lewinsky's community organizing groups uh, in Chicago in the, 19, in the late 1960s, a guy by the name, or a priest by the name of Monsignor Jack Egan was very good friends with Saul Alinsky, and they worked together and collaborated together at getting parishes involved in Saul Alinsky's Industrial Areas Foundation. And through this collaborated effort, uh, Saul would complain that he's not getting enough funding, uh, you know, it's very difficult to co- to organize because they don't have the financing to, to back it. And so Monsignor Egan had this brilliant idea. Why don't we go to the bishop? And I'll, pi- I'll pitch him an idea for a, um, a poverty reduction program, and I'll tell him about your community organizing groups, and we can try and get him to do a fundraising campaign for your groups. And, of course, Saul Alinsky was elated, and he said, great, I'd love that. So Monsignor Egan, he pitched the idea. Uh, I believe it was Cardinal Schell uh, said, go ahead and do it, and it raised a ton of money. And it was so successful, in fact, that about a year or two later, uh, a, a young priest by the name of um, Father Joseph Bernardin, who happened to become the Secretary General of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, was there and saw the effectiveness of this campaign and and then pitched that idea to the entire Conference of Bishops and said, we ought to take up a national collection for these groups, these community organizing groups. And about that time, there were spinoff groups from Saul Alinsky's groups that were starting up. One was called PICO, another one was called the Midwest Academy, another one was called DART. Uh, the, the Gamaliel Foundation also came out of this. So these networks that I just mentioned became the core of the kinds of organizations that the CCHD would finance. So they started financing these organizations, all built on the Saul Alinsky community organizing model, and 
as a result, they pulled in millions of dollars, which they had never done before, pulled in millions of dollars for this campaign. It was a roaring success, and they've, con- they've been continuing to do it ever since. So when I've been conducting this research and these investigations, what's interesting, I, I mean, I have to say, I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. There were people like Paul Lacutus at The Wanderer and, the, and um, uh, Stephanie Block, uh, who were doing monumental amounts of research to prove what Saul Alinsky's community organizing groups were doing, how they were connected to the promotion of abortion. And this goes back through the 80s when these complaints were, were coming up. And the CCHD used to issue the very same, very bland talking points. We looked into this. It's not what they say it is. They're not really supporting abortion or contraception. And... Uh, these people are just upset and they don't like uh, the, the model of community organizing that we're financing. And they don't, so they don't like our project. So, and, and they've been using the same talking points ever since. It's, it's almost a hypnotic mantra that they've been repeating in the ears of the bishops for decades. So what? now, when I produce, produce a report on, say, PICO, which changed its name to Faith in Action in 2017. Uh, I produced a report, when was this, 2022, when, um, when the Supreme Court overturned the Roe versus Wade decision. Faith in Action, of which around 15 CCHD-funded groups are a member, collectively produced a statement opposing the overturning of Roe versus Wade and declaring their allegiance with women's choices and women's rights, meaning access to abortion. So we put out a report on this, and the CCHD's initial statement was, well, we've, um, we're, we're putting a freeze on funding to FIA organizations as we look into it, but there is no sign that they have ever stopped funding to Faith in Action organizations, and they are continuing to fund Faith in Action organizations. Michael, who, and they, who is responsible for Catholic institutional oversight of CCHD? Well, it's a subcommittee uh, of the USCCB, and the current chairman, I'm trying to remember who the current chairman is, uh, I believe it's, it is uh, Bishop Sr., of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, currently. And, uh, in fact, last summer, I corresponded with Bishop Sr., and I, I sent him letters, I sent him some background information, I asked him for a meeting, and he deferred to Ralph McLeod over at the CCHD. He's the executive Is he, director. He's, he's still the head of it? He's still there. <laughs> after still after there. all these years? Yeah. Yeah. How does he hold on to his job, I mean, given what he has allowed to happen? Well, and, and again, that's a good question, but I think... I spoke with a bishop once, asking him how how they could get rid of some of the personnel that are, that are part of the problem, and the response that I got from this bishop was, I have no idea. I don't know how to fire anybody over at the USCCB. And that was kind because of you've been dealing with Ralph McLeod from the very beginning, going back. How old is the institute? Uh, well, the Lepanto Institute goes back to 2015, uh, but I've been dealing with McLeod since I was at American Life League, so as far back as 2009. You know, it, as a veteran, I can. Is it okay if I call myself a veteran? In the, <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. As a veteran, these are the things that really they get me down. Not that I want anybody to lose their job. I don't. But I want organizations to follow the guidelines and moral teaching of the Catholic Church. And I'm sure that any it seems if, if the right kind of pressure and job review were offered these things would, would at least lessen, if not go away. Well, you know what seems to me? I, I think at some point, somebody who has contributed to the campaign for human development before they were aware 
of what the Campaign for Human Development was financing, such a person ought to consider suing the CCHD and the USCCB for fraud. You know, if they've been lied to because the CCHD continues to say, oh, we don't fund organizations that promote abortion, but then they continue to fund organizations that are promoting abortion, they're lying. And if you're asking for money while you're lying about something like that, as far as I can tell, that's fraud. Have you ever tried to organize some sort of class action suit? Uh, it's it's crossed my radar. The problem is um, I, I don't have the kind of funding that would be necessary to organize a class action suit. But if somebody were to at least start talking to their uh, CCHD coordinators, their, their diocesan ones, and getting them on record and saying, hey, are you still funding organizations that are promoting abortion, contraception, homosexuality, and so forth? Uh, I've given money before, and I don't want to give money to that kind of thing. And that person lies about it. Well, that person's liable. And I would say that um, uh, any lawsuit should start there. Well, I want to say, I want to give out the URL of your website, uh, www.lepantoin, letters in.org. Is that correct? That is correct. And people can get in touch with you through the website, correct? Yes, they can. Uh, we have both the phone number and an email address uh, that, that comes to me, so they can definitely contact, it, contact me through the website. So they can come to you for information. They can come to you to report abuses. Mm -hmm. uh, they can come to you with uh, reports of having trying to talk to their priest or their bishop or the pro-life office in their diocese. And you, you would then profit from having that kind of intel passed on to you, right? Absolutely. Anything that, any tips, any uh, inquiries, uh, we always address. Um, and then if uh, if there's anything that can be done with the information that's given to us, you bet. We'll put together a report. We'll, we'll be happy to uh, to investigate anything uh, that people send our way. Now, I see you, Lepanto Institute has done a story on a book that mm. was published by the uh, prefect for the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith, that's Rotzinger's old job, uh, and yet you're calling it pornographic. Is it is it outright pornographic? It is outright pornographic. In fact, it's not just pornographic; it's blasphemous and sacrilegious. Um, the book, which was written by. <clears throat> Victor Emmanuel Fernandez, back when he was a priest in 1998, uh, he's a cardinal now, uh, his book, and I don't know how, how much detail I can get into in your program, but what he does is he compares, um, let's say, the, the ecstasies that were entered into by the saints with um, sexual climax. Well, you know, I understand that the the occasional crazed priest from here to the, from here or there will write something like that, or especially a crazed Catholic academic. That's that's where I would expect. Mm -hmm. But for someone to have written that and yet been elevated to cardinal and even more elegate, uh, elevated to be in charge of the Vatican doctrine of the faith. Um, that makes my head spin, like in The Exorcist. <laughs> Completely. Um, How did that I, happen, I, I, Michael? Oh, your guess is as good as mine, but uh, I, I think the fact that Pope Francis was made aware of this book prior to elevating him, uh, and was also aware of the other publications that were almost as bad, uh, like Heal Me With Your Mouth, um, you know, at the end of the day... Pope Francis was not ignorant of what Victor Fernandez was publishing and writing and the kind of twisted theology and perverted mind that he had when he elevated him to, to that position. So uh, it was his decision to do it. Is he still the head of that dicastery? Yes. 
again, my head's twirling the other way. (laughs) Right. Uh, Um, How much pressure is there on the Holy Father to remove him? Well, uh, I think a list of 80 or 90 uh, priests and authors and uh, uh, Catholic leaders, my name is on this list also, just signed a letter to, to Pope Francis asking him, not just based on what he had written in this book, but also in that terrible document that he put together called Fiducia Supplicans, uh, that purports to give blessings to same-sex couples, uh, we've asked for the removal of Fernandez and the, uh, the, the withdrawal of Fiducia Supplicans as a, as a document, as a teaching document. So uh, I know that Pope Francis recently responded to that, uh and and in typical faction fashion he um he kind of deflected some of the the problems and and uh kind of put his hands up in the air and said i'm not so sure you know what's what the real issue is you know if if we were to bless this this other kind of person then people wouldn't be screaming bloody murder so what's the problem here you know it's has so, has so, there been has there been much public condemnation from the bishops of our nation? From the United States? Uh, (laughs) There have been a a few milquetoast statements from the United States, but the entire continent of Africa, all the bishops of Africa issued a very strong statement uh, refusing to implement fiducia supplicants. Several, uh, I think it was Cardinal Sarr called it blasphemy and heresy. Um, Cardinal Mueller called it both blasphemy and sacrilege. So it, the, the statements that are coming from bishops and priests and cardinals is very strong. From this country, not so much, but uh, I, I'm seeing a lot of put, probably more pushback against this document than I've ever seen of any document from the Vatican. Well, let's separate the two things. The book is entitled La Passion Mystica, which I is supposed to refer to the passion of mystical passion of Christ, I think. Uh, but yet the subtitle is Espiritualidad y Sensualidad. And yes, Christ was crucified in the flesh and was beaten and tortured in the flesh. So forth, but when we talk about sensualidad, we're not talking about erotic sensuality, right? Right. Well, when uh, when we speak of the sensations that Christ experienced on the cross, which were horrific, um, yeah, we're, we're talking about physical sensations, but what? Fernandez is talking about in his book is erotic sensuality. Yeah, but which, you know, the point is that the passion of the Christ was painful. Mm -hmm. It was something we want to avoid. When you contrast that with, or compare that to erotic consummation or whatever, it's not painful, it's not something you want to avoid necessarily, except within the boundaries of marriage and so forth. Uh, you're really dealing with apples and elephants. They're completely different things. Entirely, entirely different things. One is a passion um, involving pain and death, and the other is a passion toward kind of higher pleasures, yeah. at least on the intensity scale. In one chapter of Fernandez's book, he talks about a, um, an experience that a young 16-year-old girl had described to him uh, wherein she purported to have had a mystical experience with Christ and then, in very intimate and sensual language that, that is not fitting for any kind of um, analysis of the passion, uh, described 
the kinds of touch and and caresses that she gave to our Lord in this this mystical experience, which, as a sixteen year old girl who was should should be a virgin, um, wouldn't have any knowledge of the kind of things that she was discussing unless she had experienced them personally. Uh, and, and it's just it's really horrifying that Fernandez would would exploit this poor little 16-year-old girl in what probably was an, an episode of um, of abuse and then turn it into something perverse and and in, included in a perverse theology probably in confession uh, if that's the case then then uh, he has excommunicated himself i don't know if that's the case though well the the average layman, lay person, lay women, so forth, all of us just shake our heads and think, how can this be going on in the church that we love so much and that we work so hard to uh, support and and work so hard personally to be Christ-like? How can this be going on at the very top of the Vatican doctrine of the faith? Well, I think that the same question could have been asked about how the Sanhedrin could have held a trial to condemn our Lord uh, to death. And he was innocent, the Church is innocent. It was an ecclesial court uh, in the Jewish courts, the Sanhedrin, to condemn our Lord. So in order for the Church to go through her passion, which is uh, both fide and you know, it's something that we are to believe of the faith, and it's also uh, very much written about in Scripture and, and prophecy. The the servant is not greater than the master, and we will follow our Lord in his passion, both individually and as a church, which means the church also will go through her passion. And I think that that's exactly what's happening now. She's being accused, she's being tried, uh, and this trial is being... Um, it's being conducted by impious men in high positions, just as Annas and Caiaphas were impious men in the Sanhedrin. Well, I'm talking with Michael Hitchborn, president and founder of Lepanto Institute. I've known Michael for many years, have the deepest respect for him and support him and his organization. We're going to take a short break and be right back. I'm back with Michael Hitchborn. He's founder and president of the Lepanto Institute in Northern Virginia. He's been doing such important work for many years, both while he did it for the American Life League and Judy Brown and Lepanto. Uh, and he's someone that should be heard and whose research and whose analysis should be widely known among the Catholic community at the, at the lay level, and especially at the Episcopal level. You know, you asked me, or I asked you during the break, how can you actually get someone like Fernandez removed? And I answered, answered my own question by cutting off the money. And you said, well, the church is getting money from China. Tell me about that. I don't know much about it. I've heard it said, but I don't understand the details. So in September of 2018, the Vatican signed a secret accord with Beijing. Uh, and part of the agreement was that the Chinese would be able to select um, the bishops to run the dioceses in China. Uh, Pope Francis gave partial permission, basically saying, well, you select a group, and I will confirm one of the group, and he'll be the one who's in charge. But the thing is that all the ones that are being selected by the communist Chinese are all communists, so uh, the selection process is rather stilted. But when that happens, a, uh, a, an exiled Chinese dissident who was a part of the, the communist Chinese party, his name is Wang Wenyi, uh, he actually came forward and said that part of this deal was $2 billion a year that would come from China 
to pay off the Vatican. And so far, there have been no, uh, no counters to his claim. Uh, the Vatican has not denied that it's receiving $2 billion a year. And uh, as far as I know, at least uh, the last time I looked, there has been some corroborated verification that, yes, China is providing billions of dollars to the Holy See. So cutting off the funding to the Vatican, while definitely something that we ought to do, because, quite honestly, our resources are better used elsewhere while the Vatican is aligning itself with globalists. But um, as long as it's getting money from the Communist Chinese Party, it's kind of a, a practice in, um, well, it's, it's a moot point. Uh, as long as they're getting the, that kind of money. Well, but number one, you can't hide that kind of money if there's any kind of general audit, which, of course, we don't need to get into what happened to Cardinal Pell when he mm -hmm. did his best to have a real audit. But number two, where would that money go? What 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 part of the Catholic Church and the Holy See... Would go, where would it go, and what would it be for? Well, that is uh, that is the two billion dollar question, uh, quite honestly, because we know that there have been investments made by certain individuals within the Vatican who have operated with Vatican banking funds to invest in things like Elton John, the Elton John biopic called Rocket Man, which was basically gay porn. We invested in that. Oh, yeah. The right. Catholic Church invested in Rocket Man? Yep. Yep. And in uh, a certain German, uh, there's a German um, book-selling organization that sells pornography, so they invested in that. Um, there's a, a big, posh apartment complex in, in London that the Vatican invested in, for whatever reason. So... Where the money is going and how it's being used, we're, we're only seeing little fits and spurts of of certain scandalous activities coming from the Vatican funds, and it's uh, it's not good. I, again, my head's sort of spinning around thinking why the Catholic Church would want to lend its support to Rocket Man, not because Rocket Man is so horrible, but it the lifestyle of Elton John is not something we should be putting money into to, you know, take it to the general public. Right, and I, I completely agree. Um, I doubt if they're putting money into, they put any money into the, the new movie of Cabrini. We know they didn't put any money in The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, right? Right. And, of course... That, that predates... Uh, the Vatican, the uh, Pope Francis, but your point is still is still valid. This whole issue of what the the Catholic Church invests in, mm -hmm. you know, any organization has investment guidelines. Any organization that has capital to invest, whether it's in the stock market or in you know pro individual projects projects like making a film uh, or building an apartment complex, there are specific guidelines. Do we know what those guidelines are in the Catholic Church? Well, <laughs> I would assume that the guidelines are simply Catholic moral teaching, but unfortunately we're seeing things like, you know, this, this pontificate has gutted the Pontifical Academy for Life, kicked out all of their original members that were appointed by John Paul II and... Uh, Pope Benedict, and re repopulated it with people that are pro promoting contraception, abortion, hold on, hold population on, on. control. Give us the give us the the timeline of what happened to the, the pro life organization. Life. Give give me the name again. The Pontifical Academy for Life. Because I remember a number of good people being on that. Wasn't um, Marianne and Glendon on that? Yes, that's correct. And so when did that start going, being taken down, and is there anybody left on it that we like, that we, we trust? Well, I'm trying to remember when, I, I think it was, 
Here's an article from 2016. Pope Francis dismisses entire membership of Pontifical Academy for life. Oh, so he just so, wiped it out. Yep. So in 2016, he dismissed them all, and then uh, he repopulated it with his own people, uh, including, I, I think, Paul Ehrlich uh, has been there to just... Population, uh, population control, control. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking at the board of directors, and I don't recognize anybody, which is, I mean, you and I both know, you know, people in the pro-life movement around the world, and it's a little surprising that not a single person name is familiar to me or to you. Yep. That's significant. And uh, let me look here at the acad- academici- academicians, the scholars that are that are here. I'd, I'd expect to see Robbie George. He's not there. No, he's um, not there. I'd expect to see... Well, Carter Sneed is on there. He's good. But there's 160 participating academics. And they yep. and any one person or group of people not going to have much much pop when it comes to that. So, I mean, what yeah. do, what do they do? They just make public comment and create statements? Is that what they do? Yes. They're, they're basically a glorified think tank. Um they have no <clears throat> no authority or no uh, teaching authority whatsoever. Uh, and what they had done before, they were an advisory council for for the Pope. And they would advise the Pope on things that were going on in the world that had to do with uh, issues related to abortion, euthanasia, and contraception. Uh, or IVF, they would, all, they would bring that kind of thing up too. And they were primarily looking for anything that would, uh, you know, concerns in the world, concerns in the Church, and they would bring them to the Holy Father's attention, and he would consider them, and and occasionally he would write about it, or he would make a statement about it. But uh, now they're more concerned with things like immigration and environmentalism and implementing the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations. And one of the things, I've actually been told by multiple people in Rome that Jeffrey Sachs has an office in the Vatican where he is pushing very hard across many different academies, not just, uh, I don't know that he's been to the Pontifical Academy for Life, but he's definitely involved with the Pontifical Academy for Sciences and the Academy for Social Sciences, where he talks an awful lot about how to implement and push the Sustainable Development Goals. And if you follow Pope Francis' statements from 2015 to present, you'll find that every year he is very hard pushing the Sustainable Development Goals, which are it's basically a population control program run by the United Nations. Well, you need to get over to Rome because beginning Monday, February 12th, the Pontifical Academy for Life is having a conference, a two-day conference. And one of the uh, names of one panel is the spirituality of being human toward a cosmotheandric vision. Another is interdisciplinary approach and rethinking human centrism. You sort of get, you sort of see a little bit of a, a sl- of a tendency toward. You know, things like climate change and, mm-hmm. you know, talking about, uh, not, not about the human person, but let's talk about something that is beyond the human person, get away from human centrism. How about this? Right. Modernity as a systematic factory of unworthy situations. <laughs> I used to go to conferences like that, so I'm laughing. Oh, uh, but you ought to get over there and attend that. Yeah, I, I would love to. Um, I, I don't have time to uh, to do it currently. I'm in the middle of a project <clears throat> that we are we're getting ready oh, yeah, to release. Right. But the um, I, I'm sure there are going to be recordings of the project uh, of this meeting and and. Uh, Hopefully, LifeSite News is. They, I know they've got people on the ground over there, and hopefully, they'll be able to get somebody to it and, and to uh, 
to start reporting on it because I'm sure they're going to get into topics like transhumanism, uh, making sure that that animals, the rights of animals, are protected from industry and all you know all that kind of nonsense. What about the theopoetics of the human body? Theopo, say that again. The theopoetics of the human body. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, I know what it means, or I know what it what it should mean, but I also know how it can be twisted to mean things that take us far far afield from Catholic moral teaching. Mm-hmm. Now, they got one very good man doing the opening lecture, a philosopher from Belgium named William Desmond, but as far as the rest of the crowd, it looks like another like it looks like Davos coming to Rome. You know. Well, and that tends to be the case with a lot of these now. Uh, I mentioned the Pontifical Academy for Science and the Pontifical Academy for Social Sciences, and both of those are filled with Davos types. Um, and, and you look at the guest list, and you see Switzerland on there quite a bit. And, of course, you know, Pope Francis is very much supportive of the World Economic Forum. And what's ironic, and, and I did a huge report on this a couple of years ago, uh, the Vatican is also very supportive of the counter-organization to the World Economic Forum called the World Social Forum. And the World Social Forum, these, these individuals are outright Marxists who parade through the streets with hammer and sickle flags and big banners of Karl Marx. Uh, has a lot of um, involvement from Caritas Internationalis, which is the Vatican's umbrella group for organizations like Catholic Relief Services and CAFOD and Cordaid and the other aid and development agencies of various countries around the world. And um, their involvement in that kind of thing is, is very strange. But what's interesting is that while the World Economic Forum is pushing something called the Great Reset, the World Social Forum is pushing something very similar that they call the Great Transition. And it's effectively the same thing coming from two different sides of the coin. Can I, I want to ask a general, I want to make a general observation to hear what you say. I, I became a Catholic because I believed that the Catholic Church was the, the receptacle of divine revelation in a way that no other Christian group was. I also thought that it had the most fulsome and complete uh, accounting of the meaning of human life and existence, and especially its direction toward heaven. It's it had the most uh, most convincing account of human goodness and what makes a life good and what doesn't. Yet, it seems as if the Catholic Church, at least the way it's promoting itself, seems to care only about our individual attitude toward poverty and the poor. That we uh, we are judged by how we consider our uh, our poor neighbors. Yet, my, you know, the condition of my soul, mm-hmm. the condition of my soul before God and approaching eternity, my salvation, the salvation seems to be lost in the, in the, in the shuffle toward helping the poor. Because everything is about the poor. And yet, what do you hear about eternal salvation, Michael? Well, and, and ultimately, that's exactly what is lost. Fulton Sheen used to say very regularly, if souls are not saved, then nothing is saved. And uh, I have taken that to heart. And everything that I do, both at Lepanto, in my family, with my friends, in my giving, is all centered around the, the purpose of drawing souls to Christ helping to bring people to Christ so that they can find the salvation that God desires for them. 
I'll never forget one time when I was in Baltimore at the USCCB meetings. I had to go pick something up at, at uh, Kinko's, and as I was walking, I figured I'd walk instead of drive, because driving in Baltimore is a pain. But as I'm walking down the streets, I, I happened across a, a, a street corner, and there was a woman there with, uh, I guess, her husband, and they were begging for money. And I said, well, I don't have any money to give you, but are you hungry? And she said, yes, we haven't eaten since last night. I said, well, come inside. There was a subway right there. Come inside, and I'll get you something to eat. So both of them came in. Now, she was very clearly on something, um, she, whatever drug she was on, but she was jittery. Uh, her husband apparently was mute because he had fried himself on drugs. But I ordered for them, you know, I ordered whatever they wanted, uh, bought them food, and I said, okay, let's go sit down. And I said, I just bought 20 minutes of your time. And By the way, I can so see you doing this, Michael. I can see it. So <laughs> and I said, while you eat, I'm going to talk to you. And for several minutes, I talked to them about salvation. And I said, you have a soul that is desired by God as a unique and precious gem. I said, you're on drugs, aren't you? And she said, yes. I said, whatever drugs you're on are not worth the price of the value of your soul. I said, there is a man who is the son of God who purchased your soul at the price of his own blood. You have the same value as what he endured on the cross. I said, what the devil is doing is trying to get you to invest in yourself, in your selfishness, and in whatever other distractions he wants to, to have you invest in. And that is going to lead you away from Christ. And I said, the only thing that I want you to do, when you finish eating, I would like for you to go to the Catholic Church down the road, and I would like for you to spend half an hour in front of the tabernacle, thank God for the meal that I gave you, and pray for my family. And she was in absolute tears by this point, and, and she promised up and down that she would do that. But it's the same model that our Lord had when he delivered the Beatitudes. Yeah. He brought, right. you know, he brought the, the multitude into the desert. They were hungry. He fed them. And while they were eating, he preached. And this is the model we're supposed to follow. But what happens is Catholic Relief Services goes out into the world, and what do they do? They feed belly, and then they feed bellies, and they refuse to feed the soul. So they're starving souls. Because they don't get paid by the federal government to preach to the soul. They get paid to bus and fly illegal immigrants into the United States. That's right. So the whole entire social justice movement has eradicated the purpose of salvation from the church. See, and Dorothy Day would have never allowed that. I guarantee it. She, I mean, she was so focused on salvation as the foundation for social justice movement. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read a whole lot about Dorothy Day, so I can't say for sure. But I mean, I, I certainly trust what you said. Well, the thing is that you know anybody who is sort of pointed to as a founder of social justice gets tarred with the you know, with the pitch that you just described of what has happened mm-hmm. to it. That's not where it started. Right. And uh, so I just, you know, this is fortunately not true in my parish. I have a great a great parish, a great priest who talks about salvation, heaven and hell, talks about the evil of abortion, talks about the moral life, living well, doesn't leave out the poor, doesn't leave out our obligations there. But on the other hand, he doesn't make it the the sole focus of his preaching or his teaching. I feel I feel like somebody has has reached out to me in where I am before God and where and where I want to be in a better place and has and has called me there. But yet from the from the broader church, I'm not I'm not feeling that I'm not hearing that. You're right. 
You're right. And uh, unfortunately, it's worked its way from the ground level, starting with Saul Alinsky and the Campaign for Human Development, through institutions like Catholic Relief Services into the Vatican, and now uh, the current pope, who was raised in that entire system of social justice, is taking it to its logical conclusion. I did a video uh, in 2021 about a meeting that Pope Francis had called World Meeting Popular Movements. And he had a bunch of social justice organizations there that he applauded. And he said, you are an invi- a veritable invisible army. These organizations were communist organizations. One of the, the, the Vatican produced a video about these groups, one of which was called MST, which is the Socialist Party of, of Sao Paulo, Brazil. Oh, Lord. And... MST, the, the, the woman they interviewed for the Vatican video, her name is uh, Ceres Haddish. I went to her Facebook page where the first thing that I saw was her doing a family read-aloud of the Communist Manifesto with her two young sons oh my while God. the Communist International was playing in the background. <laughs> it's almost it's almost a uh, uh, like a setup. You know, it's, it's too pat. You know, and it's too obvious. Yep. And, and why are we praising such things? Right, because, and, and the, the rationale behind it is, and, and we heard it from Pope Francis at one point, well, the communists have so much in common with social justice. Oh, Lord. Yeah, like, uh-huh. okay. Well, you know, the problem with that is that communists don't believe in anything but in material history. There's no eternality. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no transcendent good and no unshaken uh, Catholic faith. So, Mike Hitchborn, thanks for being on uh, Church and Culture. It's been too long, and I totally uh, encourage you to continue your hard-nosed work, and maybe at some point you and Ralph McLeod will see the light. (laughs) Well... We hope and pray. I mean, I certainly pray for his soul and that we all yeah. achieve salvation. But yes, thank you for having me on, and I definitely look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. We will talk again soon. And to all you who are listening, I'll be back on this day and at this time next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.